Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Leonora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle and special guest David Diddle, Chief Executive of Online Investment Advisor Ipsu Factor Investor. This week's Portfolio Clinic features a retired couple trying to retain a good dividend income without taking on too much risk. David, with all the recent stock market gyrations, how possible is this? Leonora, unfortunately, stock market investment does come with a certain amount of risk. That is unavoidable. Also, because interest rates are so low, it is difficult in current circumstances to generate a decent income without investment in shares. That having been said, I think the gyrations over the past week or so have been quite exceptional and arguably unwarranted by fundamentals in the global economy that we do live in difficult and fast-moving times. The way to cope with risk is to make sure that your asset allocation between bonds, cash and equities is both suitable to your circumstances and takes account of relative valuation, that your equity portfolio is diversified by sector and region, that you regularly review it and you have access to advice or a system for investing. But one final important point on this, whilst the capital value of the portfolio has been volatile, nothing that has happened recently should really affect the income return, except possibly in the very long run. In fact, the dividend income from such a portfolio is likely to rise over this year, subject to exchange rates. And just to take one example from the reader's portfolio, earlier this month, Legal and General increased its interim dividend by 19%. Now, this won't be across the board, but we calculate so far this year, dividends on the FTSE all share have increased on average by about 4%. So a slowdown in the rate of growth for the Chinese economy is unlikely to have much effect on this. David, um, that sounds um, more promising. So are high-yielding stocks a really good place to invest in at the moment? And um, how have they been holding up in the market falls, let's say, in contrast to perhaps more cyclical type of shares? Well, it's an interesting question, uh, high-yielding stocks at the moment. The FTSE 100 is yielding about 3.9% at current levels. Our 30 stock ipso facto equity portfolio yields 4.4%. But there are plenty of stocks yielding in the 5 to 6% range. Are these good value? Well, it really does depend on the individual stock and sector. As usual with investment, you need to be selective and make sure that a high-yielding portfolio is well diversified. Rather than looking at yield, at ipso facto, we build our portfolio by looking at valuation first. We apply certain controls over debt levels and sector diversification. But our portfolio will usually yield above the market. Putting together a portfolio of high-yielding shares, you do want to make sure you have a good diversification, as I've said. And in terms of funds, one of the interesting ways to play a high yield is through the iShares UK Dividend ETF, IUKD, which is yielding around 5%. This invests in the 50 highest-yielding UK stocks within the 350 index selected by one-year forecast dividend yield. Uh, In terms of how they've held up against the market, I mean, what struck me about the recent falls is there seems to be quite indiscriminate selling of the larger liquid stocks, at least at first sight. Obviously, the oils and miners were hit the most, although there was some XD effect in this. But even after yesterday's recovery, They have still generally underperformed over the month. But overall, high-yielding shares haven't underperformed. If you look at the iShares ETF, dividend ETF, it is pretty much in line with the all-share over August to date. One of the best-performing stocks in the ipso facto equity portfolio is Admiral, which has a high yield. 
So it really is quite a mixed picture. Okay. Now, one of the other commentators on the Reader Portfolio said that if you aren't working, you don't have your wages to offset equity losses. So, I mean, equity exposure um, for retired people, I mean, you know, how worried should people be if they, if they don't have wages to, you know, offset losses? You know, what's your view on this? Well, I think um, every situation will be different, Leonora. It will depend on your age, your overall wealth, other assets, and levels of pension income, for example. But if we're talking about equity losses, they only become realised losses when you actually have to raise capital and sell. But it's always wise to have some, some form of cash cushion. And you don't really want to be investing in equities if you think you might need the cash within five years. Okay. Now, you said before that it's very important to have um, a diversified portfolio. So alongside, let's say, your stocks, um, what might be some good high-yielding alternatives? Well, it's a a difficult um, choice at at the moment with interest rates so low. Um, And uh, we're not a great fan of investing in property to let, for example. I mean, this can be an alternative, but most people will already have significant wealth tied up in the family at home. So increasing this exposure may not be sensible. I'm not a great fan of corporate bonds at the moment, since I don't think the prospective returns are that attractive. So I would rather own a mixture of equities and cash than, than perhaps owning corporate bonds. Um, other areas to look at, um, but this won't be suitable for everyone, There are hedge fund-type vehicles which do pay an income return. There's Third Point Offshore, for example, which is a closed-end fund with a strong performance record. This has a dividend policy of paying out 4 to 5% of NAV, provided performance supports this, and absent exceptional circumstances. In 2014, it paid out 87p, uh, a yield of roughly 5%. Um, Now, another option could be um, not necessarily having growth investments, but selling shares and units in your portfolio um, each year um, instead of receiving a dividend. And um, I suppose if you don't hold it in an ISA, then offsetting the gain against your CGT allowance. Do you think that's a good strategy? I think, uh, again, each individual situation will be different. I mean, I I start from the position that a good equity income portfolio can produce both income and capital gains. So you can have your cake and eat it to some extent. But there may be situations, for example, in tax planning, where you do want to sell off investments outside tax-efficient vehicles and live off the proceeds while you build up tax-free income in an ISA, for example. Equally, with the new rules for SIPs, with inheritance tax planning in mind, You may want to leave assets in a SIP and live off other investments, so you gradually reduce assets which may be subject to inheritance tax. The most important thing, obviously, is to make sure that you do have sufficient assets to last through your lifetime. Okay, some helpful tips there. The past week has seen high levels of market volatility across the globe following on from weeks of turbulence in China. Now, Kate's been looking at what's going on, Um, Kate, what has caused the turbulence and what kind of falls have markets experienced? Well, everyone's been expecting this Chinese bubble to burst for quite a while now because the Chinese economy has been starting to slow down 
over the past kind of year. But at the same time, markets have been taking off. So that's obvious bubble territory. And what's been happening is that the government has been trying to keep the economy going through mass infrastructure spending over quite a long period of time. And that was working very well for a time. So GDP was up, employment figures were up. But there's only so long that you can keep kind of propping up, in a sense, the economy through investment spending, which is which is what the government knows. And they've known they want to move it into consumer-driven economy for a while. But meanwhile, Chinese retail investors have been pouring into the stock market. It's notable that actually in China, 80% of shareholders are retail investors. So kind of, you know, the person in the street buying shares. And there's quite a lot of debt behind that. So people taking on a lot of debt to invest in the stock market which does make it kind of vulnerable um, in situations where everyone wants to get out at once. So what's happened over the past couple of weeks is we had some weak economic data come through from China, which unnerved people, particularly because it's August, and uh, that's often when you get these kind of volatile periods. So weak economic data, and then a sudden surprise devaluation of the renminbi, which was kind of the last straw, panic set in and everyone tried to pile out at once. The reason it's it's kind of spread around the world and hit apparently every index last week, or sorry, this week, is just that most markets are to some extent quite reliant on China. China buys so much of the world's um, products that it's it's scary for, for particularly big companies in the FTSE 100 and some of the big US companies. So we saw enormous market crashes, um, particularly the Dow Jones, FTSE 100, falls in a day not seen since 2008. So it, it was kind of a, a scary time at the beginning of the week. But um, it's you know important to say that actually some of those have come back now. FTSE 100 has recovered a lot of its gains and the same for, for US markets. So it's it's been very interesting, but um, not necessarily the, the doomsday scenario it looked like on Monday. Okay, but all rather dramatic. Mm. What should investors do? Well, I mean, I think that the thing to think about here is whether or not this is a crash based on fundamentals or whether it's actually just a kind of global market tantrum in a way. And so really nobody knows quite how far this is going to go and, and how long the volatility will last. So the main thing for investors to do is, is sit tight, I think. And most advice seems to be just don't panic and don't sell out at the bottom. Um, see what happens and, and hold on. David, what are you advising investors to do in uh, the face of these uh, chaotic movements in markets? Well, uh, I agree. It's usually correct not to panic, although sometimes panicking can be a good idea. Uh, But we sent out an article to our members last week entitled Run for the Hills or Just the Summertime Blues. And we did side more on the fact that it was the summertime blues. Perhaps that's easy to say after yesterday's recovery. But this has been a very difficult time for investors. I think the most important thing is to keep on top of the situation and take advice where it is available. It can often be a good opportunity to look at your portfolio in the cold light of day and rebalance to take advantage of some cheaper assets. Okay. Now, Kate, you've also been talking to uh, fund managers and analysts, and they actually seem quite pleased. They're saying it's a buying opportunity. Why Why are they taking this stance when, you know, some people are panicking? Mm, I mean, as, as David says, it is in some ways a, a good time to get some quite cheap assets at good prices. I mean, that that's, for many people, a bit of a scary idea, um, buying something very cheap in a crash. But if this is the case, that actually this is more of a, of a tantrum than it is an issue with the fundamentals of companies, then yes, there are 
some stocks out there which might be you know looking quite cheap relative to their value um so some managers i mean most managers are steering away from miners but some are saying that miners like bhb billiton and rio tinto um as more kind of defensive plays might be good things to buy because um, in fact they can scale back on capex and might still be able to pay dividends but that's that's a pretty bold uh, that's a bold statement but then others are saying look again at um, consumer related stocks basically a lot of stocks which aren't um, so dependent on sales overseas particularly European stocks which you know rely on domestic earnings and a lot of managers are, are saying that yes they're going to be looking looking for things they might be able to buy while they're cheap. Okay. Um, David, if you are going to do this, and it does sound um, sounds quite adventurous, um, what kind of risk appetite should you have? Well, for any equity investing, you really need to have a long-term time horizon. So um, going to mar- into the market at this point is not for people who may need to raise money over the next three years, say. But for investors with an average risk appetite who have been a bit sceptical about the market up until now, this may be a good time to add a little equity exposure. For those who have a more or less full weighting to equities, it may be a good time to rebalance the portfolio in favour of some cheaper assets. Um, And uh, as as Kate was saying, there's some interesting assets in the mining and oil and gas sectors in particular. Uh, but you do have to be prepared to stomach a large degree of volatility. Um, for invest- for, but for income investors who are just worried about dividends, there are some interesting opportunities out there. I do think, um, you know, they're, they're, this, this may well be a, a decent buying opportunity, but there are two dangers out there. We can't know the extent to which the current stock market vol- volatility will impact on consumer and business confidence in the West which is still pretty fragile, and the market will remain nervous in the run-up to the first rise in interest rates for a very long time. The ability of the market to have a tantrum at whatever the Federal Reserve does should not be underestimated. I'm also a bit wary of the speed with which the market has bounced. There is a lot of hedge fund action out there, I suspect. But we should note the latest U.S. economic news has been pretty strong. Yesterday, second quarter GDP growth was revised up to a more than respectable 3.7% 3.7% annualised. Business investment plans for July also, also came in stronger than expected. And the earnings season has by and large been okay, other than for energy companies, which was anticipated. So a US economy gathering momentum should be good for global equities. Okay. Now, um, both you and Kate mentioned some shares. Are there any funds people could consider? Because obviously not everybody likes to buy direct shares. Yeah, well, um, for for the brave, um, uh, there is the BlackRock uh, World Mining uh, Investment Trust, which has had a rotten time of it. Um, it's got big exposure to the likes of Rio Tinto, Glencore, and some U.S. miners. Um, so uh, it's it's a recovery play. It has a it has a high yield. Whether they can maintain that um, is you know, it has to be has to be questioned, but that's for the for the uh, for the brave. The UK Equity Income Investment Trusts have actually held up pretty well in the recent sell-off, uh, with discounts having narrowed quite a bit. So now is not necessarily the best time to be buying here. 
I do think for those who don't have much in the way of international exposure, now may be a good time to be building up some small overseas investments with emerging markets offering interesting opportunities, in particular for long-term income investors. So as I mentioned in the review, the likes of Murray International, the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Income Fund and the Aberdeen Asian Income Fund um, were all hit quite hard during the recent sell-off. But if you can stomach the volatility uh, and you have a long-term time horizon, they could be interesting investments. Okay, some interesting ideas there. Thanks for that. Now, exchange-traded funds are a good way to get low-cost exposure to the market, but because they replicate an index, it can expose you to stocks of less desirable attributes, such as high valuations of volatility. But Kate has been looking at what seems like a solution to this problem, smart beta ETFs. Kate, what are smart beta ETFs, and why could they be a good solution? And well, smart beta is—it's an idea that's been growing in popularity in kind of past few years, um, and it's the idea of weighting stocks in an index by something other than market cap. So normally, you your ETF would just replicate an index; it would buy all the assets in that index. But instead, you're saying, "I I want all of the least volatile assets from this index, or I want the highest quality ones, or whatever." So you take a characteristic and you weight according to that. So you know, it's the idea that you can kind of narrow down and, and target um, an index in order to iron out some of the kind of kinks. Okay. Now, that sounds rather good, but uh, things mm. are never perfect, are they? What are the drawbacks to um, smart beta ETFs? Well, it's, it very much depends on what you're kind of looking at. So, Smart beta now is is a massive world and there are loads of different ways that you can do it. So some of the more common ones have been or the more popular have been things like low volatility ETFs. And then you've got another kind of subset, which are factor based ETFs. And these are even more targeted. So it's things, as I was saying, you take something like value or momentum um, or size you know, you take a one characteristic or, or tilt, you might call it, um, and weight according to that. Now, the the risks for the whole category is that these are they haven't been around for that long. So the track record isn't huge and they haven't been tested, a lot of these, in all market conditions. So whether or not they work is still, um, you know, debatable. Um, but particularly with factor-based ETFs, this is a very targeted way of doing this. And the risk there is that at any one time, one of these factors will be out of favour. So if you get the bet wrong, um, you'll you'll lose out. It's, these are not long-term buy-and-hold plays. They're quite kind of tactical, and you need to be you know, very sure of what you're doing and keeping an eye on your investment. Okay. David, do you think smart beta ETFs are a good option? Well, uh, in theory, I'm a big fan of a smart beta approach. And as Kate says, by smart beta, we mean applying a systematic approach to building a portfolio based on certain characteristics. So the idea being to mimic some of the successful active investment approaches of the past uh, at a much lower cost by building indices that reflect the desired characteristics and then having an ETF that invests according to the index. At ipso facto, we effectively use a smart beta approach to build our 30 stock equity portfolio. But as, as Kate says, uh, the problem is that it's still quite early days and the performance and liquidity of these ETFs is not 
is often not that well tested and the factors are not always that well defined. Having said that, there are studies that show that uh, if you take the five sort of common factors, value, size, quality, momentum, and low volatility, an equal weighting of these factors over the long term, for example, 15 years, has outperformed a global index based purely on market capitalization. As I mentioned earlier, I think uh, as a kind of subset of smart beta, uh, using dividend-based ETFs can definitely be an interesting part of uh, a uh, investor's portfolio. Um, but I do agree with Kate that ETFs are largely for the more sophisticated investor, and even then probably as a small part or satellite of your main portfolio. Uh, it seems to me that there are two main potential uses for these kind of smart beta ETFs. For the active investor who is confident about timing the business and economic cycle, they can be used to tilt a portfolio in favor of that factor which should outperform. Say, for example, if you think we're about to enter a contraction or recession phase of the cycle, you may want to emphasize quality or minimum volatility. That is in the traditional thinking about these things at any rate. The problem with that is that it begs the question, can you identify the stage of the economic cycle we're in? The other use is a variant of this in that, and this may be relevant to the current situation, in times of stock market turmoil, you can quickly reduce market exposure by switching, say, part of your value exposure into minimum volatility without having to take equity investment off the table altogether. But as I say, I think this is mainly for investors who are pretty hands-on and close to the market. Okay, some really helpful strategies there. Thank you, David. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bailey, personal finance writer to Investors Chronicle, and special guest David Liddell, chief executive of online investment advisor Ipso Facto Investor. You can read more about generating an income in retirement, the stock market turbulence and smart beta ETFs in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 